from Hollywood, I'm Martin Grove, welcoming you to our Screen Dollars podcast, Box Office Autopsy. In today's conversation, we'll look at the marketplace and analyze how things are going and where they're going. Joining me on the line now is Screen Dollars box office guru, Dick Walsh. Between Dick's career in exhibition, including as film chairman of AMC Entertainment, and my own days talking about movies on CNN, Entertainment Tonight, and as a Hollywood Reporter columnist, we've logged nearly a hundred years in Hollywood. That doesn't mean we're always right, but we've definitely got a few opinions to share. another overperforming weekend at the box office stick with Halloween Kills opening to $50.4 million. Killer business, I think we can say. And this is better than a lot of people were expecting, is it not? Yeah, I, I think the uh, thought had been that this was kind of played out and that even though the last one did $80 million, uh, the thought was that this one was not going to do much more than 40 to 45, so this is a very healthy number. And it reflects, I think, a marketplace that has been healthy, uh, you know, throughout this month of October. Uh, October box office has just been, been terrific. This uh, opening to 50.4 million is the biggest pandemic era horror film opening uh, of the year. Uh, of the pandemic, uh, the uh, last uh, 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 <laughs> record holder, I should say, was Paramount's A Quiet Place Part Two. It had opened to forty-seven and a half million over Memorial Day weekend. That's for three of those four days for the weekend. So it's an apples and apples comparison. And uh, this picture uh, simply found its fan base and uh, made them happy, satisfied them. Uh, of course, it brings Jamie Lee Curtis back as Laurie Strode, the role she created 43 years ago in the 1978 original directed by John Carpenter. Uh, Jamie Lee was reflecting a bit on the motivation for the serial killer Michael Myers, and uh, let's listen to uh, what she uh, thinks about that. One of the things that is deeply explored in this movie is, was it really Laurie Strode? Or was it something else? We think it's Laurie Strode because she was the point of his attachment. She was the fulcrum of his obsession. And everything around her became targets. What this movie explores is that may not be true. That there may be something deeper in him than just an obsession with me. And that's an interesting place to go. That was Jamie Lee Curtis talking about what perhaps uh, motivates Michael Myers to uh, keep killing. Uh, as for the critics, they tried to kill this picture, Dick. 
38% on Rotten Tomatoes, but I don't think this is the kind of picture that's uh, driven by critics. What do you say? Oh, not at all. Uh, this this whole series of Halloween pictures has been, you know, it, it has not received one Academy Award nomination, the entire series. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's not going to be critic-driven. It's fan-driven. It's a perfect time of year, obviously. And, uh, you know, the picture just has a built-in audience. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, as you say, that audience is there for it. And you even see that on Rotten Tomatoes, where, of course, they present uh, the audience score as well as the critics' score. So the critics, again, were 38% rotten, but audiences liked it at 72%. So uh, that's a good sign. And internationally, by the way, uh, Halloween Kills began its rollout this weekend in 20 markets overseas. It did about $5.5 million, uh, $2.3 in the UK, which is pretty good business over there. And the uh, worldwide cum is now 55.9, and I think we'll see that uh, holding up. But what's interesting, and I want to get your take on this, this picture, uh, Halloween Kills, opened day and date with streaming on Comcast's Peacock, and it does not seem to have heard it. What, what do you think is uh, going on there? Well, I, I think Peacock, of, of all the streamers, is, is one of the weakest. And, again, that's why Universal decided to go with the picture on, on Peacock to help it out. But uh, I think you and I talked about this last week. People don't want to see a horror picture in their living room sitting there by themselves. They'd rather see it with a group of strangers in a big movie theater with a large screen and be totally terrified. Absolutely. I, I agree with you there. Uh, I think the horror genre is just not well suited to watching alone in the dark at home. You know, it's, uh, it's maybe terrifying in a different way to do it at home. But people like that, that sort of communal feeling of everybody's shrieking in terror as uh, something suddenly explodes on the screen. So uh, that was the uh, the big story of the week at the box office. Of course, Halloween Kills took over the number one spot. Last week's number one, but not forgotten, is No Time to Die from MGM Universal and Eon Productions, the 25th Bond film, and it held well. It did 24.3 million. It was down only 56 percent. What does that tell us? Well, it it says that uh, you know the audience for this type of picture comes out over the first two to three to four weeks. I will say this, uh, right now it is tracking on a trajectory that would be the lowest Daniel Craig installment of the franchise. Casino Royale did $167 million back in 2006. That was his first one. This one is going to struggle to get to $150 million domestic. Well, I think that that's an important point that, you, that you're leading us into, and that is that internationally is where the Bond films have, for many, many years, performed best. And uh, at the moment, you see the, the difference right now. Uh, domestically, we are presently at 99.5 million for No Time to Die. But internationally, it has already done 348.3 million. So the global queue, thanks to international, is 447.5 million. Now, that international does not yet include China. It doesn't open in China until October 29th, 
and uh, most uh, observers are saying they think it will do very well in China. So that international cube is certainly going to escalate, and if it isn't the huge hit domestically that it is abroad, it isn't going to matter because in the end, they don't care where the money comes from as long as it comes in, I think. No, you're absolutely right, and uh, I believe there will be another bond. There will be a new bond, and there will be a bond 26, because the franchise just continues to roll, and it will do north of a half a billion dollars internationally. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be very difficult to believe that uh, producers as smart as Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli would just fold the tent and say, well, you know, this was a little disappointing domestically, so uh, we're, we're just uh, going to go home and, uh, you know, and, uh, not make any more movies. Not, not, not going to happen. I think they will recast Bond. They will re-energize Bond. They might cast Bond with an eye to the domestic marketplace. Who knows? I mean, there's so many different ways they could go. Uh, last week here on Box Office Autopsy, we were speculating that if uh, they recast Bond with uh, Idris Elba, who's worked with the director of, uh, of this uh, uh, Bond film, Kari Fukunaga, uh, if they recast that role that way, uh, it could give it an entirely new lease on life, and, uh, and, and, and who knows. But I have a feeling that uh, we'll be talking about another Bond film somewhere down the road. Now, uh, a film that I don't think we'll be talking about, uh, well, not even next week, as a matter of fact, is the other wide release this weekend, and that was from Disney and 20th Century Studios, The Last Duel. It's an R-rated historical drama. It opened, well, down in fifth place, and it opened to just $4.8 million. I think we could call that a duel to the box office death. And uh, this is a big film. Ridley Scott directed it. He's, he's the director, of course, of Gladiator and Thelma and Louise, Blade Runner. It's got big stars, Matt Damon, Adam Driver, Jodie Comer, Ben Affleck. Um, what, uh, what do you think happened there? Well, I, I don't think it ever found uh, an audience, and I think historical dramas are very difficult to sell to the public. Uh, they bought an awful lot of ad time in the final two weeks to try to raise the awareness numbers. The awareness numbers just weren't there, and the public kind of said, you know, I don't need to go out and see this picture and, uh, you know, The Last Duel may be uh, one of these older type of genre pictures that just aren't going to find a market for themselves anymore. And yet this picture has action, it has violence. Uh, in fact, we happen to have a uh, clip from the film, and uh, let's give a listen, because this sets up the central story of the duel to the death. I say before all of you... I spoke the truth. A most unspeakable charge has been brought against you. Jacques Legree entered our home. He attacked me. The accusation is false. I am telling the truth. The truth does not matter. There is only the power of men. This should be settled quietly. I'm innocent! I request a duel to the death. 
If you lose, your wife will suffer dire consequences. That was a scene from The Last Duel. Ridley Scott, the director there. Now, uh, by the way, critics like this picture. We can't accuse the critics of killing this one. It got 86% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Didn't sell any tickets. Audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, that wasn't bad either. It was a 79%. And, I mean, typically that means uh, word of mouth is at least okay, not bad. And the picture was not streaming day and date. But it simply failed <laughs> across the board there. Even internationally, it opened this past weekend, Dick, to uh, 4000000 million two in 37 territories. So uh, nothing much going on there. However... I will point out that uh, Ridley Scott, fortunately, has another movie opening very soon. And that one looks like it's going to be, I think, a, a big hit for Thanksgiving. It's from MGM and Braun. It's the R-rated crime thriller House of Gucci. Now, uh, this picture is uh, getting a buzz for Oscars and, I think, for box office. Are you hearing anything along those lines? I, I am hearing nothing but positive things about it. The trailer is playing very well in the theaters, and uh, there's a there's a lot of interest in this this subject matter, which is obviously uh, we move history forward three to four hundred years, and people are more interested in a name they've heard almost all their lives, Gucci. Yes, and this has a, a really an all star cast. You got Lady Gaga, Adam Driver. Jared Leto, Jeremy Irons, and just to uh, top it off, Al Pacino. So uh, this is one I know that I'm looking forward to. I think this may be the picture that brings the adult audience, the over 45 audience, back into theaters. I think this is something they're going to want to see. Now, the big news of the week is another picture that I know audiences will want to see, but much younger than the crowd for House of Gucci, Paramount and Spyglass put out the first trailer this week for their horror reboot, Scream, which opens on January 14th of next year. And, of course, it has coming back from the blockbuster original franchise, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette. Now, this is a picture that uh, was, was a huge, huge uh, success uh, when it originally opened from Miramax's Dimension Films label. Uh, it, it, the picture cost about $14 million to make, and it wound up doing, in the, just domestically, $103 million. So uh, this, is, this is a potentially big reboot right along the same lines as we saw with Halloween. We're going to talk about that, but let's give a listen first to just a little scene from this first trailer for the new Scream. This isn't funny, Amber. What do you like? scene from Scream coming uh, January 14th of next year. Uh, the, the original series uh, 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 that came out spawned sequels 
uh, three sequels in the, from 1997 through 2011, but uh, it was directed by Wes Craven, who had directed the 1984 horror classic A Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you see a uh, Halloween-type success ahead for the new Scream? There's a chance. There's a chance it can do it, and it's the fact that they've gone back to the original cast, which is always very helpful, and the fact that Halloween went on to do uh, $80 million its opening weekend on the reboot, uh, by far an all-time high in the series. This is certainly what's motivating everybody behind screen. And early January is a good time to release a horror flick. Yes, and, and this one uh, may be more in, in the minds of moviegoers today because while the original Halloween came out in 1978, the original Scream came out in 1996, so, so it's a lot more current, but we shall see. But meanwhile, on the immediate horizon next weekend, when we are back to talk about the results, is from Warner Brothers and Legendary Entertainment, the much-anticipated sci-fi adventure, Dune. It will be streaming on HBO Max, but it's worth pointing out that the director, Denis Villeneuve, shot it to be seen in IMAX, which hopefully is where uh, moviegoers will go. And I think this could be a big picture. What say you? Well, the uh, anticipation for this has been very strong. The last couple of weeks, the interest continues to build. Uh, everything is first class about the picture. Uh, it has potential best picture nomination uh, potential. Uh, and the scope, uh, everything about this picture says big picture, big growth. And big stars. Rebecca Ferguson is here, as a matter of fact, to tell us about working with Timothée Chalamet. Let's give a listen to her. Timothée is an extraordinary actor. I, uh, <clears throat> from the moment that I was a, a part of this journey, just meeting Denny uh, and talking about the film and, that, and then him telling me later on that he didn't offer up the information that, that it was um, Timothée Chalamet playing Paul. It was more down to the story. It wasn't a selling point for him, which I have to say to his credit. Um, and then when I found out, there was such a wave of excitement for me because I, I think I've seen all of, of Timmy's films. Um, so to be on the receiving end of, of his way of working and, and being, as he said, we were a safety net for him to be able to throw himself into different emotions and, and a new journey for him. This is a, a new experience for him. And to be there with him and see him not develop, we all develop. He, he's, he's just, he's wonderful. And, and I know it's a cliche, but when you work with great people, it makes you want to deliver new characteristic traits for yourself and your characters as well, to give them something. That was Rebecca Ferguson. She enjoyed working with Timothée Chalamet and... Uh... The uh, success of this film will certainly depend a lot on how those performances are received by moviegoers, but I'm, uh, I'm thinking, uh, let's, let's guess that it's going to go over well. A lot, of, a lot of good buzz for this picture. By the way, it's playing overseas already in 36 markets, uh, including Japan, and it has already grossed uh, almost $130 million, so uh, it's going in the right direction. One more film opening next uh, weekend, and that is from Disney and 20th Century, 
And this time it's a uh, PG animated comedy adventure called Ron's Gone Wrong. It's about a boy, Barney, and his malfunctioning pet robot, Ron. And uh, no streaming day and date, so that's good. It isn't tracking great, but uh, but who knows? Uh, critics seem to like it. It's 85% fresh on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, uh, uh, and it looks cute to me. If you've seen the materials, Dick, uh, what what do you think? Well, this is a genre, the, the family film, the family animated type of film that has yet to prove itself uh, this year in the comeback that uh, we are currently experiencing. And we have got to start seeing some very big grosses out of animated. As you know, animation has been one of the strongest suits of theatrical exhibition over the last 10 years. But we will keep our fingers crossed that moms with kids come back to see Ron's Gone Wrong. And Dick, next week here on Box Office Autopsy, uh, we'll tell our listeners the wrong story, as well as what went right. So uh, thanks for listening out there, and please join us again uh, a week from today on Box Office Autopsy. Time now for our film flashback look at what was happening in Hollywood right around now, way back then. Let's set today's time travel dial for October 13th, 1950. Moviegoers applauding All About Eve at its New York premiere October 13th, 1950, didn't know its story of intrigue in the world of Broadway theater was true. The only on-screen credit for what later became Eve's Oscar-winning screenplay was for Joseph Mankiewicz, who also won for directing. He went into the record books for winning twin Oscars back-to-back, with his two from a year earlier for A Letter to Three Wives. Unlike Eve, Wives credited two other source material writers. Learning where and how Eve's story originated is, perhaps, an even better story than the one Mankiewicz told so well. Eve began as a short story, but its behind-the-scenes story could and, in fact, did fill a book, Sam Stagg's All About All About Eve, in 2000. It all began with The Wisdom of Eve, a short story by Mary Orr that ran in Cosmopolitan in May 1946, but didn't ignite any interest from Hollywood. Three years later, 20th Century Fox's story department suddenly sent it to the studio's producers, including Mankiewicz. While there are many similarities to Eve, Orr's wisdom differs in that her ambitious ingenue, Eve Harrington, and Baxter in the film, doesn't suffer in the end for her many sins against aging stage star Margot Channing, the movie's Betty Davis, who's called Margola Cranston in Orr's story. But that's not nearly the whole story. Orr wrote what she'd been told in the summer of 1944, 
on a weekend visit with her then-almost-husband, director Reggie Denham, at the New Hampshire country home of Austrian actress Elizabeth Bergner and her husband-manager Paul Zinner. Bergner was a big theater star then, best known for the two Mrs. Carrolls in 1943 and 44, which Denham directed. While preparing dinner, Bergner told Orr all about a terrible girl, always wearing a red coat, who stood outside the stage door nightly to catch a glimpse of Bergner. She later became Bergner's understudy and then wound up doing, well, much of the same bad stuff that Eve Harrington winds up doing. Orr absorbed every word and later, at Denham's suggestion, turned it into wisdom. In January 1949, to earn money while Denham recovered from a serious accident, Orr adapted wisdom for NBC Radio's Radio Guild Playhouse, which was first aired in New York and then repeated live for L.A. Three days later, she got word that Fox wanted to option wisdom and was offering $5,000, big money then. But in putting the deal together, or so Fox later claimed, Orr's agent didn't request screen credit for her, so therefore none was given. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another box office autopsy next week. In Hollywood for Screen Dollars, I'm Martin Grove.